This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT8. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Packman Show, Comedian Lee Camp, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman Program, Citizen Radio, All In with Chris Hayes, and World Trust TV. And a note of warning that this episode contains elements of satire that may be too subtle for some listeners. An unemployed black woman pretends to be white, and the number of job offers she gets go way up. This is an interesting article on Techieville by Yolanda Spivey. Yolanda Spivey is a black woman. She was unemployed two years. She applied to over 300 open jobs in insurance, which is where she worked for 10 years, definitely her area of expertise and experience. She did not get a single response. She went back to college, finished her degree, applied again wasn't getting any responses to the job she applied to on Monster.com. So Monster has a diversity questionnaire which asks you about your race. You can decline to, to disclose that. And they say it will not jeopardize your chances of getting a job. It's just kind of for informational purposes. You can't skip the question, but you can say decline to identify. So Yolanda Spivey thought maybe that's hurting me. She goes into her Monster.com profile and she changes it to decline to identify. Isn't hearing back from anybody. She hears, she thinks of another idea. She goes back in, she creates a fake applicant named Bianca White, fills in the identical employment history, identical resume, identical education as her real self, Yolanda Spivey. Changes the phone number from her home phone to her cell phone so that it can't be linked back to her original profile. And then she puts White on the diversity questionnaire. Phone call, same day. Emails, packed, same day. She gets a whole bunch of, of, of job offers in the field of insurance. In one week, she received nine phone calls as Bianca White and none as African-American Yolanda Spivey. And she received seven emails as Bianca White and only two as Yolanda Spivey. Both were for commission-only positions that required her to move out of state. Um, now, what do you think about this? I'm not surprised. When I first read about this, I said, yeah, there's a lot of individuals who want to hire specifically white people. I'm not surprised in any way, right. but this is really kind of like, this is, this is an A-B test in a, in, a, in a compelling way that really shows it's the same credentials. She just changed her name and race. Yeah, and of course, it's probably uh, even more possible that if she pretended to be a man, that that might have gone up too, because we know that there's still a lot of, uh, you know, bad stuff going on, uh, inequality in that department. I actually had a similar situation, which is I messed around with this. When I was uh, in undergrad, I think I was a junior or something like that, in my summer, summer of junior year, I started applying to a bunch of different jobs, and I saw this diversity question. Now, according to the U.S. Census, I'm Hispanic, right? I'm born in Argentina. My first language is Spanish. Uh, even though my background is Eastern European Jewish, and I, I'm completely identical genetically as to what I would be if my family came straight to the U.S. instead of to Argentina, according to the census, I'm Hispanic. And I did some testing. I made a profile where I put white, and I made a profile where I said Hispanic and identified myself as a diversity candidate. And it's very anecdotal. I don't pretend to say it was any kind of scientific study, but the results mirrored what Yolanda Spivey uh, had here, um, which, which is that there was more interest, more callbacks, and more interviews under my white David Pakman um, profile. So, yeah. again, completely anecdotal, but interesting that Yolanda did this.
Cause if you let me I will always stay by you You've gotta trust me That's how it must be There's so much that I can do This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net The Zimmerman trial was not about George Zimmerman or Trayvon Martin and that's been the problem since the beginning. We don't actually know what happened that night. All we truly know is that Zimmerman ran out of his house wielding a gun like a G.I. Joe if, if, if G.I. Joe had the physique of Jack Black and less intelligence than a belly button lint. But then the action figures wouldn't sell very well. But I admit, watching Trayvon Martin's murderer walk away feels like this country turning our back on the racism that still permeates our society. But we shouldn't look at it that way. We should believe the jury knew what they were doing in this case, and then, whether there's a sexy courtroom saga to follow or not, whether Nancy Grace is salivating over the play-by-play -play screaming in the sedated faces of a grieving family or not, we should confront our country's problems. We shouldn't need a dead teenager to say to ourselves, some is up. We should be capable of looking at the numbers of the prison industrial complex and understand it's a racist system. We should be able to look the job market in the eyes and see the racism, even if there's no missing white girl involved. There was a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research where they sent out 5,000 resumes. The only differences were the names of the fake applicants. Some had normally white-sounding names like Chad Baker or Greg Smith or Thomas Small and others had black-sounding names like Lakeisha Thomas or Cedric the Entertainer. I feel like they did a better job picking names than I did, but you get the point. And the researchers found that the applicants with the black names were a full 50% less likely to get called in for an interview. That's when you see what a biased society we live in. Simply by your name sounding black, you're 50% less likely to even get your foot in the door. Their name alone is them. Kind of like how I can't get a job working at a Korean restaurant simply because my name sounds like a gay Korean sex act. It's when you see that in New York City, black and Latino men account for only 4.7% of the population, and yet we're 41.6% of unwarranted stop and frisk searches in 2011. And in 33 precincts, that number jumps up to 90%. Meaning, the stop and frisk program should be called the harass colored people program. We should be protesting the societal discrimination that ultimately ends in people like Zimmerman thinking it's okay to dukes and hazard their way across a lawn with a gun chasing a kid holding a deadly bag of Skittles. We don't really know what happened that night, but we should know and talk about what is happening every other night. Or perhaps we could just take all the discrimination numbers like the ones I've mentioned and put them in a car trunk with a missing white girl. And then the news media might, might cover it. Bill O'Reilly is going to take on President Obama, 
and I'm going to take on Bill O'Reilly. Uh, he's addressing President Obama's uh, speech on race on Friday. Uh, O'Reilly's back on Monday, and he's going to let the president have it. He's glad he talked about race, but he claims he's got everything wrong because, of course, Bill O'Reilly has black people figured out much better than President Obama. So let's hear. Young black men commit homicides at a rate 10 times greater than whites and Hispanics combined. When presented with damning evidence like that, and like the many Holocausts in Chicago where hundreds of African Americans are murdered each year, the civil rights industry looks the other way or makes excuses. They blame guns, poor education, lack of jobs. Rarely do they define the problem accurately. So here it is. The reason there is so much violence and chaos in the black precincts is the disintegration of the African-American family. Right now, about 73% of all black babies are born out of wedlock. That drives poverty. And the lack of involved fathers leads to young boys growing up resentful and unsupervised. When was the last time you saw a public service ad telling young black girls to avoid becoming pregnant? Has President Obama done such an ad? How about Jackson or Sharpton? Has a Congressional Black Caucus demanded an ad like that? How about the PC pundits who work for NBC News? White people don't force black people to have babies out of wedlock. That's a personal decision. A decision that has devastated millions of children and led to disaster both socially and economically. So, raised without much structure, young black men often reject education and gravitate towards the street culture, drugs, hustling, gangs. Nobody forces them to do that. Again, it is a personal decision. First of all, stop pretending that you care about black people. They always bring it up in the context of like, oh, there's so much black on black crime, and God, you know, I, the victims are black, and I'm the one looking out for them. No, you're not. All you want to do, and it screams through that whole piece, is you want to blame black people. You, they've created a holocaust, a mini holocaust in Chicago? Look, we've covered Chicago on this show many times, and it's a disaster what's happening. It's not a holocaust. There's way too much gun violence in Chicago. But it isn't black people holocausting their own people, etc. When he uh, talks about how, oh my God, there's no ads at all uh, talking about how young black girls shouldn't get pregnant. That's not true. We covered the ads on the show. And there were some controversial ads about how don't get pregnant, what happens to the kid if you wind up getting pregnant, etc. So it's just not true as usual with Bill O'Reilly. He says, how come President Obama isn't doing that ad? Really? President Obama's going to do an ad about, hey, don't get pregnant. Is he going to do every public service announcement in the country? It's absurd. What does O'Reilly actually want to do? He wants to blame black people for every part of the problem. It's your personal decision. It's your fault. And the people that didn't fix it are President Obama, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson. It's their fault for not fixing it. And he literally says in the middle there, don't blame white people. Now, look, are there... 73% uh, of uh, blacks being uh, kids now being born out of wedlock? Yes, that's true. Do you know that for under the age of 30, for all races, now the majority of kids are born out of wedlock? 
It's not just a black issue. It's a more of a generational issue than anything else. It does have some societal consequences, and I don't begrudge the conservatives talking about that at all. That's a perfectly fair conservative point to make, whether you agree with it or don't, as to whether it's the real root cause of it. But he doesn't mention all of the races. He doesn't mention uh, this generational divide on that issue, this cultural divide on that issue between older people and younger people. It's like, all oh, black people. And now, when it comes to crime, he talks about how black people commit more crime. But again, we don't have a sense of why, what's happening outside of this one thing that they've latched onto. Families, families and personal decisions. Black people had it coming. They all made these personal decisions. And they like to have sex outside of wedlock, so they had it coming in two different ways, right? Now, what he doesn't tell you is, yes, among poor whites and poor blacks, there's a huge disparity in crime. It's true. Now, when you go to other uh, societal uh, stratification issues when you go to upper class blacks and upper class whites and by that we simply mean the income brackets is there a difference well if it's as these guys seem to imply you know blacks you know they like to have kids out of wedlock they have cultural issues they have personal issues well then then rich blacks should commit more crimes etc etc than white blacks but they don't well how about middle class blacks you say well the rich doesn't count they're all rich they don't have to commit crimes or they commit white collar crimes and get away with it right? the middle class no difference in crime between african americans and whites no difference so why is there a difference among poorer americans it's mainly an issue of how you live where you live do you live in a pocket of opportunity do you live in a pocket of, of poverty so for example even if you're poorer in seattle you have a chance of moving up the ladder more than if you're in middle class in Atlanta. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that really interesting? And in fact, when you study it, and professors and, and, and people who do this for a living have actually studied it, unlike Bill O'Reilly, who's like, I got this thing figured out. I know the street culture. These blacks, they like the rap music and all that, and they like to have sex out of wedlock. I figured it out, right? No, you didn't figure anything out. When they study, they find out that poor whites are more spread out, whereas poor blacks are concentrated in certain areas that makes a vicious cycle of poverty and crime. So there's actually a way to fix it. And it isn't by blaming black people, it's by being proactive and having the government make the right decisions. And by the way, if you took a conservative angle on this, there's a perfect, perfectly legitimate one. Saying, hey, you know what, the government screwed up when they created the projects and that they created ghettos, and then they put poor people all in the same place, and it wound up creating this vicious cycle. That's a fair point. Why don't you make that point? But he doesn't make that point. Instead, he goes, ah, you know, they make these personal decisions with their gangster culture, etc. And he's got more on that. Watch. But the entertainment industry encourages the irresponsibility by marketing a gangster culture, hip-hop movies, trashy TV shows to impressionable children. In fact, President Obama has welcomed some of the worst offenders in that cesspool to the White House when he should be condemning what these weasels are doing. These so-called entertainers get rich while the kids who emulate their lyrics and attitude destroy themselves. And then there's the drug situation. Go to Detroit and ask anyone living on the south side of the Eight Mile Road what destroyed their city. They will tell you narcotics. They know addiction leads to crime and debasement. But what do the race hustlers and limousine liberals yell about? 
the number of black men in prison for selling drugs. Oh, it's so unfair. It's a nonviolent crime. And blacks are targeted. That is one of the biggest lies in the history of this country. The guy is brazen, man. What is your facts on that? In fact, we've shown you that they just did a study and found out that even though whites and blacks do drugs at the same rate, same rate, blacks across this country are arrested at a four times higher rate. That's a fact. But in the no spin zone, they don't give a damn about facts. Now, does that mean, does that fact mean that there isn't a drug problem in some of the inner cities? Of course there's a drug problem in the inner cities. It doesn't mean that at all. But it doesn't mean because there's a drug problem in the inner cities that you have to crack down on the people who took those drugs and say, ha ha, we're going to punish you more than we punish white people. We're going to put you in jail where you're going to get exposed to more crime, more drugs, etc. That's an incredibly dumb way to go about it. And one more thing. At every step of the way, O'Reilly has condescension dripping from his mouth. Oh, the race hustlers. And in the past, he's talking about pimps and hustlers. Gee, oh, those code words are so hard to figure out. When's the last time Bill O'Reilly ever called a white person a hustler or a pimp? And whenever he talks about black people, oh, those gangsters, and they get invited to the White House, those weasels, those hustlers, those pimps, etc. Gee, Bill O'Reilly, I can't quite tell if you're really trying to help black people or just blame them. It's kind of hard to figure out. You really got me in your no-spin zone. Squarespace.com is a platform used to build professional-looking websites so easily that anyone can do it. The fact that it's easy to set up and just works so that you can focus on the content of your website rather than the logistics of it is music to my ears. So they have these templates that you can use to build your website, right? That's what makes it easy. But when I saw what they could really do, I was blown away. Everything is drag and drop and then adjustable on the fly so that you can move or resize pictures effortlessly, just for an example. But the coolest thing is when you look at a website built on Squarespace, whether it's on a desktop computer or a tablet computer like an iPad or a smartphone, the exact same web page will be shown in a different way to perfectly fit the device the user is on. And it's not like a small, dingy barely usable mobile version. It's like the real website. And I had a conference with these guys at Squarespace so they could run me through the features of the site. And they demonstrated this feature to me by actually changing the size of a browser window in real time so that I could watch as the style of the website changed fluidly from one design style to another to fit the smaller and smaller screens. And it, I mean, it was honestly like some sort of black magic. So if you're worried that a user-friendly website with pre-built templates won't have really powerful technology backing it up, then you can put those fears to rest because Squarespace is an excellent marriage between high power, high technology, and ease of use. So try out a free trial now, see how you like it, no credit card needed. Then when you do sign up, you can use a special offer code LEFT8, that's L-E-F-T and the number 8, to get 10% off their service and to let them know that you're supporting this show. So again, the offer code is LEFT8 to get 10% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. I want to I want to talk about race and crime and poverty and 
you know, the stuff, I, I want to talk about the stuff that everybody is talking around, and particularly in the corporate media is not talking about, except for the right-wingers, and they're talking about it in a way that is disingenuous and untrue. I brought this up yesterday. I want to expand on it a little bit today. And that is, uh, you know, for example, I didn't, I didn't see Bill O'Reilly's la rant last night. Shano and Dan Danielle were telling me about it when I came in today, um, that, you know, he just kind of went off on Detroit going bankrupt. And, you know, this is what happens when you put unions and Democrats in charge of a city. This is the predictable thing. This is, this is the meme that all the right-wingers are doing right now. And the subtext to it, because Detroit is 85% African American, is the by uh, on a percentage basis, racially, it is the most African American major city in the United States. And so the right wingers say, so therefore, of course, it's going to go bankrupt. Juxtapose that with Trayvon Martin and some of the hate mail that I'm getting. <laughs> you know. Hey, it was a black guy in a hoodie. What do you expect, right? This sort of racial stereotyping. Juxtapose that with people trying to justify George Zimmerman going after Trayvon Martin because, after all, everybody knows there's all this so-called black-on-black crime and black people are more likely to commit crimes in America. Quack, 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 quack. Now, here's the reality. You know, the the base the the right wing the the subtext of the right wing message is an essentially racist message, which is that black people can't run a city, black people can't run their own lives, black people can't be economically successful in the United States. African Americans, you know, it's the bell curve. There's something wrong with them. That's the subtext of the right wing message, and they're all they're all speaking in code, and they're all hearing it every. Everybody who hears a right-winger say this understands what's being said. At least all the right-wingers do. And I think probably most left-wingers have figured this out, figured it out long ago. So how do you explain it? How do you explain the fact that black men are the statistically the most likely population in the United States to be murdered? It's true. Or that... Black people, African Americans, are more likely to commit crimes against other African Americans than against white people, and African Americans are more likely to be the victims of white of crime than white people. How do you explain that? You know the right wing's answer. It's the bell curve answer. It's the racist answer. What I'm not hearing is anybody pushing back on that. I mean, this was a conversation I thought we had back in the 60s when the right-wingers were pushing back on LBJ's great society, and he said, no, we're going to do this, and here's why. We had some very, very, very loud and clear and crystal clear conversations about race in the 1960s. I was there, I remember. So let me repeat some of this stuff for you. In the, in the 1840s and 1850, 1845 to 1848, you had this, as I recall, you had this giant famine in Ireland, because the British told the Irish that all the wheat that they grew in Ireland had to be exported to, to Britain, because Ireland was a colony of Great Britain. The British told the Irish, you have to export the wheat, so the only thing you can, and you can't eat any of it, 
You can't eat bread. That's why so many Irish immigrants or Irish... That's why so many people in Australia have Irish roots. Because they were arrested literally stealing bread. Or for eating bread. So they had to eat potatoes. And there was this blight on the potatoes. There was a, a fungus that took the potatoes out. And they didn't have enough to eat. And a million people died of starvation in Ireland. At the same time that Ireland was exporting wheat to England. More than enough wheat to feed all the people in Ireland. This was in the 1840s. So the Irish said, to hell with this, I'm getting out of here. Or many of them did. And they immigrated to the United States. They came to the United States and they talked differently. This is the, the you know, around the era of the Civil War in the, and in the decade or two after the Civil War. And they talked differently. They were easy to identify. You knew who the Irish were. You could sort of see by how they looked, but you could definitely tell once they opened their mouths. And so the wasps, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, said, hey, you know, cheap labor. Keep these people down. And Irish crime in the United States in the, in the mid-19th century mid to late 19th century, was so epidemic that there were books being written about the Irish gene and speculation that people with red hair were predisposed to crime because there were more redheads in Ireland and there must be a, gene, a genetic basis for this. Two generations later, when the accent was completely gone and the Irish had largely integrated themselves with other white people, and outside of Boston there were, you know, there were not that many Irish ghettos, the Irish should become part of the American middle class. Because you couldn't tell that they were those, those people. The same thing happened with Italians in the 1890s who, who had a mass immigration into the United States and you had this huge explosion of Italian crime. Particularly on the East Coast and from the 1890s until the 1930s. They, it created, they created the mafia. Because they were being kept down. Eventually, the Italians assimilated because, hey, you know, white people, white people, and they lost their accents. Now come along, now here are African Americans. Now, African Americans have been here a lot longer than either the Irish or the Italians. But they can't assimilate into white culture by looking like they're white. I mean, they can try, they can wear a suit and tie and say, I'm wearing the uniform of white culture. But they can't change their skin color. So the kind of racist oppression that the white power structure in the United States applied to the Irish immigrants and to the, to the Italian immigrants, and also to the, to, the, to the Chinese immigrants in the 1880s, has been, without, has been relentlessly applied to African Americans all this time ever since the Civil War, ever since Reconstruction, ever since Plessy versus Ferguson and Separate but Equal, ever since Brown v. Boy, you can look at all these milestones of African Americans having to go to law over and over and over again to get rights that the Irish didn't have to go to law to get once they assimilated. The Italians didn't have to go to law to get once nobody could tell that they were Italian because they'd lost their accent because their skin was white. So the consequence of this 
racist oppression is poverty. And the consequence of poverty is crime. Right? Why did all those Irish get arrested and shipped off to Australia? And people are thinking that poverty equals race. It doesn't. disappointing because it's a really cliche it's a rich person thing. played out criticism of the black community that ironically enough it started because he was talking about bill o'reilly um who you would totally expect this kind of criticism from um where he's saying that o'reilly originally said there's so much violence and chaos in the black precincts because uh of the disintegration of the African-American family. So that's obviously a really hackneyed cliche analysis of why there's violent crime. He left out because a white cop shot the kid's dad. (laughs) But but like poverty, poverty is a huge issue and it it leads to widespread violence and it's not race-based. Like if poor communities were the poorest communities in the United States, they would have the most violence. Um, and historically, that's always been the case. Like when immigrants come to this country, whether they be like Italian, Irish, whoever, when they live in poor ghettos, there's a lot of crime. Well, and it's also not just because like black people like won the unlucky lottery, but you have generations still reeling from slavery, Jim Crow, right? All these, you know, discriminations with schools, with colleges, and even though that's not there. These generations have been playing catch up for so long. And not only that, but now you still have um, the best schools, the best resources are going to wealthier neighborhoods, um, institutionalized racism, uh, hiring discrimination, all this stuff. So Don, Don Lemon says O'Reilly doesn't go far enough. Oh, that's the opposite. In his criticism of the black community. And he actually starts to go into this bizarre rant about sagging pants. And he actually recycles a myth involving gay prison sex, which is so disappointing because it manages to be racist and homophobic. Oh, I didn't hear that. All at the same time. So he's this is a direct quote. Sagging pants, whether Justin Bieber or no name Derek around the way, walking around with your ass and your underwear showing is not okay. In fact, it comes from prison when they take away belts from the prisoners so they can't make a weapon. And then it evolved into which role a prisoner would have during male on male prison sex. 
the one with the really low pants is the submissive one. You get my point? That is not tr- true. It's weird. That has been disproven time and time again. The, the whole sagging pants thing does have an origin in prison culture, but it's because the clothes didn't fit the prisoners right, and they would sag down. So that sort of segued into like rap and hip-hop culture because it was like an homage to Where are you going with that, prison buddy? culture. But here's what's so disappointing about that. It's like he is a... Uh, a gay man of color and he is being racist and homophobic in his critique of this what's essentially a cultural dressing choice you know like you might not like it but is it the end of our society as we know it no it's really not that big of a deal like i've always said to young black youths that i see on the street hey pull your pants up and then be born into a country (laughs) that doesn't have class discrimination go and then I carry them into my time traveling car. Like, oh, you're carrying now? Yeah, you're, fuck you it. don't have to be carried? With black people, I try to be a hero. Okay. And then I go, white savior! And I throw them into the car. And then I put on the gas. And then I forget I don't know how to make a time traveling car. And then they crash into a wall. And then I run away. So I'm wanted on several hate crime charges because I was trying to help. Um, Here's the problem you're probably thinking, well, you were racist and homophobe, but I'm a white lady. And I feel left out. Good news. Don Lemon on Twitter while trying to... Oh, there is so much more. Oh, of this? Yeah, so much more. So should we say the woman? Yeah, I don't know where you're jumping to, but um, I I can't even get to all of it, but there's a couple points I wanted to hit. He goes through a list. He's like, Blacks, I know you're going to be mad at me, but here's how I feel. Here's what's in Don Lemon's heart. And he goes like, number one, number two, number three. So I'm not going to go over all of them, but a couple that jumped out at me that really annoyed me. Um, He said, uh, number three, respect where you live. Start small by not dropping trash, littering in your own communities. Hey, I have a a thought. Maybe if the government put fucking garbage cans. Yeah, like this really annoyed me because Jamie and I used to live in a really poor community in Queens. Uh, No garbage cans. There's no garbage cans. It's not like poor people like living in their own. There's literally no trash cans. So and and a couple people will kind of go out of their way to like put like trash bags on like their fucking like gate. Yeah, but like, but like that's all you can do. Dangling fucking garbage bag. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you're there's a lot of poverty in your community and you see terrible things happening in your community, it's not going to instill you with a sense of community pride. You know, Um, so that annoyed me. Uh, number two, he says, you want to break the si- cycle of poverty? Stop telling kids they're acting white because they go to school or they speak proper English. Here's the thing. We're American. None of us speak proper English. No. How I'm talking right now, this is not proper English. This is just a dialect no. I happen to have. I, I think you forgot the nickname we gave him. Sir Donald Lemon <laughs> speaks the Queen's tongue. But that really annoys me that... It's a lot of victim blaming, right? And we'll get to the more victim blaming in a second. Well, but really quick, I want to go back to number three because um, I actually wanted to talk about this, but I can at least briefly promote the article. Um, there's a great article by my friend Erica Nicole Kendall um, at Salon, and it's called America's Food Debates Are Just White Men Talking. And it's always framed as big food versus Michael Pollan. Always, 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 always. Right. And the article highlights... Um, a community garden in East New York where all these people of color were saying, you know, there are rotting apples at our bodegas. We can't get healthy. We can't do anything. Um, so we're going to take it among ourselves 
uh, and, and we're going to build these gardens. And things like that are happening all over the place. And you want to know why it's not growing more? Because networks like fucking CNN, where Don Lemon works, don't cover these stories. Right. Because they always have Michael Pollan or Mark Bittman or these fucking white elites come on and talk about it. And it's like... Guess what, assholes? There are people trying to do something about their community. You just don't give a fuck about them because you're not going to those communities. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I would much rather hear from the person who's building a garden because her fucking grandma died because she's been living on bodega food her whole life than Michael Pollan, who can afford fucking organic goat cheese. You know what I mean? Like, I don't give a fuck. That happens with every issue. There's always, like the white elite gatekeepers to come on, you know, with very few exceptions that I can think of. Most shows, when they talk about, like, labor disputes, uh, or something like Fast Food Forward, they invite on the white journalists who are covering the story. You yeah. know, they and that yeah, that includes me. I was invited on shows to, like, talk on behalf of movements and stuff like that instead of inviting on the activists, instead of, instead of inviting on the workers yeah. and hearing directly from them. There are, uh, you know, a very few exceptions that I could think of, like, on MS. SNBC, yeah. uh, Chris Hayes, Melissa Harris-Perry, their shows, they invite the workers on to talk for themselves. Here's a quick side note. Which one of you monsters signed me up for ChristianBook.com mailing list? Because <laughs> I'm not happy about it. I've deleted three already. So, are you sure it wasn't you as a joke? Maybe it was the Lord himself. So, um, about this speaking proper English thing, this is especially annoying because we've just come off of the George Zimmerman trial where Rachel Gentel was basically talked down to by white middle America when they said, you don't talk right, so we think you're stupid. We scared white people coming. I don't get I don't get it. Yeah, meanwhile, she was just speaking in a certain dialect. She speaks three languages, which is more than the average American. It's more than most people criticizing her. Um, and she just has a different dialect. It's not that she's not speaking proper English. There's no such thing as proper English unless you speak like the Queen's English, right? When I talk to somebody from Fargo, North Dakota, I assume they're a monster and I want to run away. Right. Uh, you're not used to certain things. It's just that we are used to, in media, hearing a very certain type of dialect. And there is employer discrimination where sometimes employers say, you look weird, you talk weird, I'm not hiring you. That doesn't make that right or just. No. That just makes it discriminatory. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's... You're acting like if somebody, if uh, a black person who lives in the ghetto suddenly bought a pair of khakis and started enunciating more to your liking... That suddenly, you know, their community would be like, all fixed. Right. You know what I mean? And it's like, the, it, I, when, in order to be confident, you need things to, I don't, I don't know how to explain this, but I did not become confident. I did not become compassionate. I did not become any of these things until I started to become more successful because I was fucking miserable and I was fucking scared and you can't expect them because you don't litter. That's not going to get you a job. That's not going to fucking feed your family. You give this person a job. You treat them like a fucking human being. You make it so they can fucking afford pants well, to yeah. Don Lemon's likings. Then you're going to see a change in attitude. This is what, 
annoys me about the Don Lemon thing because essentially what he is saying is you need to act white in order to survive and not addressing that that statement in itself is a demonstration of institutional racism. So Chloe uh, Angel had a awesome tweet that I I retweeted it and it's a perfect summary of this. You need to change your behavior so I'll stop oppressing you is the definition of privilege. We're all alone, no chaperone can get our number. The world's in slumber, let's misbehave. Hi everyone, today in lieu of asking you to support this show, I want to ask you to support my fundraising effort for this year's Climate Ride. This will be my second year in a row raising money for 350.org, the best climate organization I know of with a massive international reach, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the best local climate organization, which works in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, and also happens to be the place where I used to work, so I know personally how much they deserve the support. In exchange for you helping me reach my goal of $2,400 raised, I will be riding my bike the 300 miles between New York City and Washington, D.C. over the course of five days in September. To contribute, simply visit climateride.org and search for my name, Jay, and you'll see the full name, Jay Tomlinson, pop right up. Click the name to see my fundraising page and make a tax-deductible donation. I've already contributed to get the ball rolling. Thanks in advance for your support. Let's misbehave. Those shocking images are from Huntington Beach, California, where at the conclusion of the U.S. Open of surfing on Sunday, a white mob began rioting. The angry crowd vandalized property, broke the windows of businesses, looted some stores, and brawled with each other on the streets of downtown Huntington Beach. Police used rubber bullets on the unruly mob and arrested at least seven people, including a firefighter from Anaheim. You probably haven't heard much about the white riot in Huntington Beach, and that's because the story of white criminal culture is not a story the mainstream media will tell you. But once you scratch the surface, these stories are everywhere you look. Take billionaire hedge fund manager Steve Cohn, for instance. How many times this week have you heard about the federal charges he's been slapped with for alleged insider trading violations? And what about J.P. Morgan Chase, a company run almost entirely by white men? Well, that financial giant quietly paid $410 million in a settlement after being accused of manipulating the power markets. The sad truth is that the white power structure in this country has no clue, no clue, how to solve the problems within the white community. Look, I don't want people to be suspicious of white men, but the Huntington Beach riot underlines a stark truth about white culture. The fact is, 84% of white murder victims are killed by other white people. We really do have to question whether white leadership, where they are on this issue. Conversation is sorely lacking an appeal from the moderate white community. After all, no one forces white people to throw haymakers after their surfing competitions. And when white youth are raised with so much privilege and so few boundaries, these young white men often reject concepts of self-control and not being a jerk. Some people may feel like I'm stereotyping. I don't care. I'm dealing with reality. The white community needs to ask itself, how are we going to deal with this problem? Finally, there's one brave writer in the mainstream media raising that question. Gawker columnist Cord Jefferson handed out a healthy dose of truth following the Huntington Beach white riot. Whites in America have been out from under their European ancestors' boot heels for centuries. California specifically outlawed preferences for non-whites in state hiring and education nearly two decades ago. So being oppressed is no longer an excuse for behavior like this. 
How long must we wait for the white community to get its act together? Joining me now is Cord Jefferson, the West Coast editor for Gawker.com, author of the aforementioned column, A Dangerous and Irresponsible Culture. Cord, you're not going to hear this kind of thing in the mainstream media. My question to you is, what inspired you to finally rip off this taboo and talk about the problems with white culture? Uh, you know, um, I'm a person of color, Chris, but first and foremost, I consider myself an American citizen and a resident of Southern California. And seeing what the mob did uh, in Huntington Beach on Sunday night, I just felt there was no way that I could sit on the sidelines anymore in good conscience and wa watch uh, so many white youths debase themselves the way that they are. You know, um, and so I think that sometimes people have to stick their necks out. I, uh, I don't want to use the word martyr, but I guess I'm kind of a martyr on this front. You know, th th there are people that are going to tell you that it's just a few bad apples. If you look at the video, you can't say this whole group, uh, you know, this has nothing to do with white people. It's just a few bad apples. What do you say to that? Uh, to that I say that if, if, if that's your actual belief, then you're living with your head in the sand. Um, I used to live in New York City and would uh, occasionally go to Hoboken, New Jersey, St. Patrick's Day Parade. Um, and there were so many young white men there, vomiting in the streets, urinating in the streets, getting in fist fights in the streets. Um, it, was, it was a I've sight seen to it. be seen. I've seen, it it was, my, I've seen it myself. You, there's, there's college dorms you can go to, every other room. Yeah, and the, and there's the, a bong. There are people talking about how much, drug, how much they enjoy drugs, a drug culture that people... And, and and white elders don't say anything about it. They kind of nink, they wink, and they nod. You're looking at, uh, they're, they're learning, the, and the thing is, is that these, these young people are learning this kind of behavior in lacrosse camps, they're learning this kind of behavior at college spring break, they're learning this kind of behavior at Ivy League fraternities where drug use and binge drinking are normalized behaviors. Um, and these kinds of places are, are kind of the hives of moral debasement that, that, that are leading to, I think, uh, the, the, what we're seeing, is, which, is, which is this white, on, white crime scourge. Here, here's my question to you. People are going to say, you know, the, this is someone who has a personal problem with white people. Do you have a personal problem with white people? Is this, is this animus? No, I think I think any time that you tell truth, tell the truth, uh, there's going to be those people who come out and think that you're doing it for some insidious reason and, and say you say that you're a racist. Um, I kind of knew that some uh, white people were going to say that this is just. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I knew that knew that some white people were going to were going to call this playing the race card, but it, it isn't playing the race card. Uh, my best friend is white. Uh, my mother is actually white. Uh, my my prom date in high school was a was a white woman. She was very white actually. She uh, she used to ride horses and, and do that whole thing. So obviously very, very deep. I have very deep roots in the, in the white community uh, that, that uh, this, isn't, this isn't hatred for whites. This is just tough love. And I felt it was time that somebody told the truth to these people. It's a hard conversation, but it's one we need to have. And, and I'm glad we're having it. And my question to you, Court, is what is it going to take to get the white power structure, prominent whites, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, to start speaking out on this kind of thing, to start talking about the St. Paddy's Day parades, to start talking about the drug culture on campuses, to start to even just take the first step and condemn the Huntington Beach riots. You know, I wish that I knew. I wish that I knew. Uh, when I look towards the white leadership, when I look towards the Justin Biebers of the world and the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and the Sean Hannity's of the world, I often hear them talking about the problems within the black community, but I, I, I have yet to really see them take a serious long look at the problems within the white community and, and look at these look at the, these kinds of violent offenses that are going on within within white neighborhoods and, and on white college campuses all the time. Um, and that's that's been difficult to watch. And, and so I, to them, I would just say... Uh, uh, physician, uh, heal thyself first, and, and I'm glad that people like you are, are stepping up in the white community and really sort of looking at this, looking at this problem for what it is, which is a serious, serious issue. We appreciate that. Cord Jefferson, the West Coast editor for Gawker.com. Thank you. Thank you.
If you watched that segment and thought that's an absolutely ridiculous premise and an absolutely terrible way to talk about millions of people who share nothing, nothing, except their general broad pigmentation, you are correct. And remember that the next time you hear those same arguments, but with a different word in place of the word white. And we don't want to admit that this is existence. Still scared to acknowledge the benefits of our white privilege. Cause it's human nature to want to be part of something different. Especially when your ancestors are European Christians. And most whites don't want to acknowledge this is occurring. Cause we got the best deal, the music without the burden. Of being black in a system that really wants you to rock. Cause all you need is a program and you can go and make hip hop. And we hate the mainstream. Cause we're the ones that took it. Now we listen to Aesop Rock and wear t-shirts that say Brooklyn. But it's not about black and white, right? I mean, good music is good music regardless of what you look like. But when you don't give them props, isn't that selfish? That's like saying rock was actually started by Elvis. Today's activism segment comes to you as always in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and director Katie Klebusik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for their communities and the world. Today's campaign, Fast Food Nation, Strike for Economic Justice. No issue exists in a vacuum. As we commemorated the 50th anniversary March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom this past weekend, speakers reminded the crowds on the mall and on TV that the most famous speech wasn't just about an end to Jim Crow laws and school integration. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is taught as an inspiring moment while brushing aside the intersectional nature of his advocacy and activism. In the more than 300 speeches King delivered before his death, he spoke of access to the voting booth, peace at home and abroad, and end to segregation, and economic economic justice for men and women of all races. We frequently forget that when he was assassinated, King was in Memphis to support AFSCME sanitation workers. He knew, as the majority of those in the movement did at the time, that there could be no real freedom, no real equality without equality of opportunity. Our history books and national mythology skim over this aspect of King's work and downplay that part of his August 28, 1963 speech, which comes before the words, I have a dream. Reputable news outlets have played this section as part of their coverage this week, and they bear repeating here. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Reverend Al Sharpton quoted these words in his speech this weekend with a 21st century update. 50 years ago, Dr. King said that America gave blacks a check that bounced in the bank of justice and was returned marked insufficient funds. Well, we've redeposited the check. But guess what? 
it bounced again. But when we looked at the reason this time, it was Mark's stop payment. They have the money to bail out banks. They have the money to bail out major corporations. They have the money to give tax benefits to the rich. But when it comes to Head Start, when it comes to municipal workers, when it comes to our teachers, they stop the check. We gonna make you make the check good or we gonna close down the bank. This Thursday, the fight for economic justice in the fastest growing segment of our economy continues. The fast food workers are expanding their Fight for 15 with a nationwide strike. Events are scheduled across the country sponsored by labor groups, immigration reform advocates, and racial justice coalitions. The racial justice news site, Color Lines, explained why race and economics aren't simply related, they are the same fight. Quote, this new economy is populated by an increasingly non-white labor force. The average fast food worker is about 30 years old, female, and, as with low-wage work in general, likely to be a person of color. In 2011, 28% of working black women and over 31% of working Latinas had jobs in the service sector. Find the event in your area and stand in solidarity with this broad coalition. Show our country's legislators and CEOs that a living wage matters, that it affects our entire economy and our right to pursue happiness. If you can't physically stand with the Fight for 15, spread the word and encourage coworkers and friends not to cross picket lines. Bring your lunch or support a local spot where workers are not on strike. Links for today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. Visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for this and other activism opportunities. Also, remember that we encourage you to use your phone or other mobile device to record audio of your experience at any political event you attend to send in to be used on the show. Help unfuck it up. And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking man's help unfuck it up. Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? My sister-in-law. Everybody on this uh, Who's half black, half white, but looks white. Blue eyes, whiter than most white folks. Very white. Uh, she and I, you know, we kind of grew up together. We raised our children together. Uh, so they're first cousins. And we, you know, it's a wonderful, very, very multicultural family. So we're going in a safe way one day. And um, Kathleen, my, my sister-in-law, is in front of me. And she's, uh, you know, writing a check for her groceries. Now, my daughter, who at the time was 10 years old, was standing with me. And I was directly behind her you know, getting ready to get my groceries. So Kathleen comes up, and the checker, who is a strawberry blonde, um, freckled, very delightful, warm, um, you know, the checker, this young woman, is talking to Kathleen. Hey, how you doing? This is a nice day today. They're just chatting up. And she says, yes. Yeah. So Kathy writes her, her check, and she steps off to the side with her groceries because she's waiting for me. Of course, again, Kathleen looks white, right? So I come up. No conversation. She looks up at me. Absolutely no, just little chatter. And uh, I write my check. My daughter, however, is 10, notices immediately the difference in how she responds to me. So I write my check, and she goes, I'm going to need two pieces of ID. At which point, my daughter looks at me 
and she gets very, very embarrassed, and tears are, are, are kind of coming up in her eye, like, Mommy, you're not going to let her do this. Why is she doing this to us, right? So I'm trying to figure out what I should do, because behind me are two elderly white women, right? And I'm thinking, okay, so then I become the angry black woman, right? And they're going to be, and I just, I'm, I'm just trying to second guess all the drama. So then I, I just give her the two pieces of ID. I say, you know, some things you've got to choose your battles, right? And then it gets worse. She pulls out the bad check book. Right? So the, this is the book that shows the people who have written bad checks. So she starts searching for my license in the bad checks, at which point it's just out of control now. Just as I'm standing there um, trying to decide what to do, and it's really deeply humiliating. Now my, my daughter is in full-blown emotionally upset, who's 10. My sister-in-law walks back over. And she steps in and she says, excuse me, why are you doing this? And the checker goes, well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? She goes, why are you taking her through all of these changes? Why are you doing that? She goes, well, um, this is our policy. She goes, no, it's not your policy because you didn't do that with me. Oh, well, I know you. You've been. She goes, no, no, she's been here for years. I've only lived here for three months. And so at this point, the two white elderly ladies go, oh. I can't believe what this checker has done with this woman. It is totally unacceptable. At which point, the manager walks over. So the manager walks over and says, is there a problem here? And then my sister-in-law again responds. She goes, yes, there is a problem here. Here is what happened. So you see, she used her white privilege. And even though Kathleen is half black and half white, she recognizes what that means. And she made the statement. She pointed out the injustice. And she, as a result of that one act, influenced everyone in that space. But what would have happened? I can't know for certain had the black woman said, this is unfair. Why are you doing this to me? Would it have had the same impact? But Kathleen knew that she walked through the world differently than I did. And she used her white privilege to educate and make right a situation that was wrong. That's what you can do every single day. This is Elka in uh, Fort Wayne. I'm just calling with a few comments in response to the latest LGBTQ episode. I've been a lifelong LGBTQ ally, advocate, and activist. And, um, you know, obviously I am all for marriage equality and have uh, advocated for that, supported that move, that issue and the movement um, for that issue. But I do have a problem, and, um, you know, the problem is that there's the focus on marriage equality is such that other issues in the LGBTQ communities that I serve anyway um, get pushed to the margins. And I'm always concerned about people on the margins, and that includes LGBTQ people on the margins. So LGBTQ uh, poor people, LGBTQ people of color, LGBTQ people with disabilities, LGBTQ people, uh, you know, living in, in poverty and financial insecurity. The issues that those folks, those diverse populations, even within LGBTQ communities, those issues that, you know, they're suffering from and, and their needs often get pushed 
to the margins just like they get pushed to the margins. So I just want to encourage people to, you know, yes, continue to support marriage equality. Yes, you know, let's continue doing everything we can to make that a reality um, in every state in this country. But let's also remember that there are other issues and other needs and other populations within LGBTQ communities who, you know, whose voices are not being heard. Um, INDA, for example, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, that still has not been passed. There are places in this country where you can be fired simply for being, you know, an LGBTQ person. INDA has not passed the Senate. That, in my mind, needs to be the next focus. We have got to get into past. The Williams Institute has released a couple of really wonderful reports that I want to encourage people to read. One of them is called Beyond Stereotypes, Poverty in the LGBT, LGBTQ Community. Excuse me. And um, another one is called Provider Perspectives on the Needs of Gay and Bisexual Male and Transgender Youth of Color. These are two wonderful reports. Certainly, um, you know, two reports that have enlightened me in my work uh, with the LGBTQ community. And, um, you know, it just will help people get a better understanding of other things that are happening, other things that need focus in addition to marriage equality. I also want to encourage people to visit a couple of websites. Beyondmarriage.org is a wonderful website, excuse me, um, coordinated by a group of people who came together and formed a position statement about why it's important not to simply focus just on marriage equality. And then another website that I want to encourage people to visit is the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. That website and that organization is wonderful. They look at all issues that need our attention right now um, for LGBTQ people. So, again, just, you know, want to encourage people to think beyond marriage equality. Yes, it's important. Please don't think I'm not saying, you know, that I'm saying it's not. But um, there are people on the margins suffering and um, they really need support and they need advocacy and, and that's where our, our focus and our attention needs to also be going. Thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay. It's Wade again. This is going to surprise a lot of people, but I'm actually for a single-payer health care system. You know, I wanted to see Obamacare get turned down at the Supreme Court, not because I hate Obama or anything like that. Somebody said it would have forced Congress back to the drawing board. Now we're stuck with this relatively useless law for the next 30, 40 years, okay? Single payer is not going to even be talked about seriously for a very long time. And the thing about it is single payer could be such an economic driver because if you took away everybody's ability to, um, to or excuse me, everybody's obligation to have to pay for health insurance, that frees up a lot of extra money in the economy. And health insurance in general is, is ridiculous. It's, it shouldn't be health insurance. It should be health care. That should be the term. Who cares about insurance if it costs $1,000 a month and they only pay 20% or 30%? What does that matter? Even if they pay 80% of a, of a $400,000 medical bill, I don't know about you, but, but I'm, 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 I'm broke. So I don't see the point of health insurance. It should be health care. Health insurance is retarded anyway. Would you insure a NASCAR? Of course not, because it's going to get wrecked. People are going to get sick. They're going to get hurt. It's an inevitability. So how can you insure an inevitability? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And, and, and we need to stop this whole health insurance talk. Start talking about health care. 
And you very rarely hear a pundit or a politician talk about that. It's always health insurance. we got to insure the uninsured. What good? They're uninsured because they don't have enough money to buy insurance, or for the most part. So you give them insurance, are they going to now suddenly be able to pay their co-pays and their the, the reduced you know prices of medical care? I just highly doubt that. We need single payer. It's an economic driver, and that is how you're going to get the conservatives on your side on this. It's going to help the economy. This is good. Good for everybody. My thoughts on it, and uh, have a good one, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. First today, a real quick update. I mentioned in the last episode that my girlfriend and I were going to the UK in search of medical treatment that's not available in the US. I had to skip a whole episode of the show because of that. And so the update is... We made it back safe and sound. I'm horribly jet lagged and we, we, you know, got what we went in search of. So now we just have to see if the treatment actually works. Uh, so that's everything that happened uh, minus all of the details. And thanks to everyone who, you know, wrote in or, or you know, whatever uh, to send well wishes and, and kind thoughts. It's all very much appreciated. Uh, secondly, today, I, I want to talk about an analogy. I, I come up with these analogies about, uh, you know, racial oppression and white privilege every once in a while. I, I like to share them because, you know, we all come to terms with the issue of race. It's, it's one of the most difficult ones uh, we deal with, I think, and and everyone comes to it differently. And and so every time I come up with a new analogy, I think, you know, I'll, I'll share it and that'll be, the, that'll be the one that reaches one more person or, you know, maybe you'll like it more. And then when you turn around and talk to other people about race issues, then you have this new, uh, you know, arrow in your quiver. So, so the, the analogy I came up with is from the movie Office Space. Essentially, everyone my age has seen office space. It's just one of those things uh, for my generation, I guess. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like 15 years old, maybe. And so, spoiler alert, I'm just going to tell you what happens. A, a large part of the premise of the movie is that these guys who work in a sort of just like soulless, faceless uh, corporate office come up with this accounting scheme to siphon off a little bit of money for themselves and, and so they can get out of their terrible jobs. And the idea is there are these, you know, thousands of transactions going and they all have these rounded off fractions of a cent that just get rounded off into oblivion. And they tweak the code in the computers to rather than rounding off those fractions of a cent into oblivion, they get rounded off into a bank account. And then they, you know, control that bank account and they project that, you know, you let the system run for a few years and they'll get, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars, something like that. And, and so the, the idea is that, you know, instances of racial oppression and white privilege can sometimes be very small and hard, hard to really appreciate until you look at them in the bigger picture. And so, you know, he's, uh, well, hey, I'm sorry you were born in a, in a poor area with no government services. You know, lots of black people are born in areas like that. But, you know, just too bad. Like, 
get yourself out of it. Like just do the work and, and get yourself out of the ghetto or, you know, and just work hard, do what it takes to succeed. And, oh, I mean, sorry, like we have to close the school in your area, but I mean, you don't mind taking a bus for two hours a day. Right. And I mean, really the important thing is that you get a good job and become a productive member of society. But, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry to hear that black sounding names hardly get uh, you know, any callbacks for interviews for the jobs they apply for. I mean, maybe you could think about changing your name or, well, I mean, I guess you could probably get a couple of part-time jobs at fast food places and you get by by only working like 60 or 70 hours a week. Uh, you know, but anyways, if you, you know, if you think the whole system is so screwed up, well, then it, at the very least, make sure you vote. That's how you can change the system if you think it's messed up. Uh, you know, otherwise, it's no one's fault but your own. Oh, and I'm sorry to hear about those laws that were just passed that made you ineligible to vote because you've never needed a government-issued ID until now. Uh, you know, but hey, just use some of your free time during regular business hours that you surely have and get down to the DMV and spend the cost of an entire meal for your family on an ID card so that you can vote. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, each one of those, like, okay, sure, like, hey, it's not that big of a deal, it's just a little thing, or just just work a little harder and you can make it, you know, but when they get piled on over and over and over, you start to see, you know, the the place some people find themselves in is, you know, sort of at, at the bottom of an insurmountable, uh, you know, obstruction, and, you know, some are able to get up and over that, and that's great, but you know, the point is the obstruction shouldn't be there in the first place. And so each one of these little items, you know, maybe little, some are, some are bigger than others, you know, but it's, it's really like, you know, an office space when they expect, you know, each little tiny fraction of a cent to be, uh, you know, rounded off and put into an account. But eventually it adds up to real money. And, you know, of course, as, as in the movie, you know, they accidentally, you know, abuse the system a little bit too much things get out of control and eventually the whole office burns down. I mean, I don't know. I think I, I lost track of the analogy. I think, I think black people are the soulless corporation and white people are stealing from it. And so I guess the black people burn down. I don't know how that works, but I mean, the point is if someone's asking for something as simple as their favorite stapler, just give it to them. Cause otherwise they will, you know, snap and burn your society to the ground. At least I think that's what they're planning. I, I don't get invited to the Black Agenda meetings, you know, because of reverse racism. Anyways, I, I think at least some of that made sense. So use what made sense and, and disregard the rest. Um, but that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member, making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, DC. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained. We can see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can see past our stories and forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing